New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Mendrinos. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. Uh, we are recording great episode this afternoon, and hopefully you get to enjoy it wherever you are, in the comfort of your own home. Hopefully you're safe. Hopefully you're happy. You're going to learn a lot today. This gentleman that we're bringing on is one of the greatest performers in New York City comedy. He's been doing stand-up for over 30 years. Uh, you've seen him on television. You've seen him on Broadway. You've seen, you've read his book. Um, it's going to be a fun and really complex hour, Mr. Jim David. All right, this one's going to be fun for me because I have not seen our next guest in over a year. I looked at and the last time I saw you was well over a year ago. Uh, and, and, you know, we have to see each other virtually for this one. But it is fun because every time we work together, especially those long drives back from Connecticut, listening to James Bond theme songs, we, we just laugh so much together. So this I is know. Gonna be, this could be a fun hour for me. Uh, Mr. Jim David. Jim, thanks for Hello. joining us. Good to see uh, you, Jim. Good seeing you, too. And, and to, just to start off, you know, because we're recording during pandemic, you're safe, you're, you're good, you're, no worries where you are. No. Nope. Everything's good. great. Good. That's, that's the most important thing to everyone's safe. So, Everything's great. I've managed to do okay. Good. Very lucky. Because so, I wear a mask. Yeah, well, we all have to wear our masks. Unfortunately, there's a whole lot of jackasses that don't wear their masks. Well, I mean, it's like, let me tell you something. If they hate wearing a mask, they're really going to hate wearing a ventilator. Yeah, yeah. But That's going to be a big, big problem. Well, you know, but again, you know, at that point, it won't be a choice. So they, those <laughs> people that don't like to choose. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about, we know each other, you know, if, if, my, if my calculations are correct, well over 30 years. You, like, well, I've comedy since 1986 yep and so that's 34 years yeah and we met at comedy you a year or two of doing comedy yeah so we know each other a long time and and here's what i always loved about you as a performer and i wanted to talk about this because you had this from day one you were always so confident on stage like when you stepped on that stage it belonged to you almost more than any other performer I've ever seen. You just stepped yeah. there. It was home from, from the get-go. And I, I, you know, as somebody who's primarily a writer by trade, you know, I, I sit there and I watch the natural performers and I go, how the hell did they do that? So I think, yes. Oh, you know, how they, you, know how they, you know how they do it? Being how? in children's theater my whole childhood. Uh-huh. I was a munchkin when I was in the fifth grade in The Wizard of Oz. And then from there, I was just in plays all through high school and college. So the stage was, I knew that, I mean, it took me a long time as a comic to develop a persona and to develop security with my material, but the actual presence being on stage, I mean, I, I, I winged it for my first couple of years of comedy and I made the audience think that I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I could fake it. Okay. You know, talent is nothing but, I mean, talent is nothing but executing skills with confidence. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it is it is just I mean, like an, an an untalented performer who has not a lot to say can still fake it and make you think that they know what they're doing. 
to yeah. a degree. And eventually, eventually the, the people are weeded out, you know, the people that, that don't know what they're doing. But like, I mean, case in point, I mean, I think, uh, I think Donald Trump has the ability to, to just riff for hours on nothing. And the weak-minded will mistake this as sage, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's, he's the greatest bullshitter in history because he, he just goes out there and just says it, even though he has no answer, he just says it, you know? Yeah. He'll rip, if you notice, it's interesting, he'll repeat it because it, he thinks on his feet. And so he'll repeat, you know, a lot of people are saying it. This is what a lot of people are saying and a lot of people are saying. And he just says it over and over again to formulate in his head, you know, we're high in the polls. Our poll numbers are really good. We're high in the polls and we've got great polls. He'll, he'll just do that. And so it's just, I don't mean to compare myself as a comic to Donald Trump, but you know, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, I absolutely know what you're talking about. It, um, I had a lifetime of being on stage before I started doing comedy. Most comedians, that's when they start going on stage. I already was there. Well, so I may have, I think that my material in the beginning of my career was really kind of mediocre. I mean, I look back at it and I go, well, I wouldn't do that this today. But I, I, I did what I did and made, and, you know, I talked myself into television appearances. Yeah. You know, and I made, I fooled them. <laughs> but, it is, but the confidence is half the battle. See, that's interesting because... I have no confidence in front of a television camera. None. Mm. I don't like the way I look. I don't like the, the angle at me. I don't like the lighting. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally have no confidence in front of a television or movie camera. But when I'm on stage, I'm like, I'm, I'll be in a theater and a thousand, fifteen hundred people are in the audience. And I'm like, I've got this. You know, it's interesting. But you put me on a camera and I, I, I don't know wow. what I'm doing. Um, but yet I've seen you on TV all the time and you do fake it very well. If that's all well, just a facade. I don't, I feel comfortable. All right. Uh, like when to... I, I, was, I was on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn a whole lot. Yeah. You know, for the few years I was a regular and I would, I would look at those, I would look at the, the broadcast and I was like, Jesus, why did I wear that? Why was I sitting like that? Why didn't I get my hair done? Why didn't, you know what I mean? Oh, I so, do. That, that's, just, that's just that's just your personal thing. I mean, a lot of famous a lot of famous actors cannot bear to see themselves on on film. Yeah, and, and you know what? I think we see the mistakes. You know what I mean? When we watch ourselves, we see the mistakes, and we know what we were shooting for, and we judge ourselves based on on the shortcomings. Whereas the audience is only seeing what you actually reach. Right. You know, and that's that's a hard part for us as performers. I want to talk a little bit about Tough Crowd for Colin Quinn because that was. You were the odd choice for that show. And, and in my opinion, that's kind of what made it work. That, that you were, because I mean, that show was, if ever there was an all boys club, that show was an all boys club. And everyone was singular in focus. And most of the regulars were what I, what I used to refer to as the bully crew. They would just take the, the non-regulars, oh, yeah. run over them. Uh, and I remember when I was going on to do that show, I had bumped into you at the comic strip about, about two weeks before, and you asked me who I was on with, and I said, Patrice, and you said, bully him back. That, that was your advice to me. So what did it take for you to be able to be there? Because you not only fit in, but, but you, on a lot of those episodes, took over, you know, by sheer force of nature. It was, I was fighting for my life on that show. We, we all were, because... 
I had Nick DiPaolo and Patrice O'Neill yelling at me backstage. They tried to they tried to they tried to mess me up before I got on camera. Mm -hmm. They would say the most homophobic crap that they knew would make me go, <coughs> you know, and uh, I just had to turn around and give it back to them and not care and, and never show on camera how much it was really bothering me because it was. There's no yeah. way people can say these horrible things to you and, you know, and then they like, oh, well, we're just kidding. You know, lighten up. You know, got to be because a tough crowd came from the comedian's table at the comedy cellar yeah. where we used sit there with Manny, the owner, who's dead now. And I would sit there at the Comedy Cellar table with Colin Quinn and Nick DiPaolo and Patrice O'Neill and Jim Norton and Keith Robinson and Greg Giraldo and an assortment of other people, Rich Voss, you know, and it was, it was, a, it was every man for himself because we would get into these, we would get into these horrible political arguments because Manny was a, a right-wing Israeli and he would always want to talk about you know, should they annex the West Bank? And I don't know. Fuck it. I don't care. You know, <laughs> they're all crazy. And, but anyway, we would we would we would just get into these knock down political arguments coupled with insults to each other. You know what I mean? Like real. Yeah. Really, yeah. Well, that's because you're that's because you, you know, how about the waitresses you tried to bang in Des Moines or whatever? And uh, then somebody would say something absolutely hilarious and it would totally break the ice, and that's where that came from. And um, when we were on the air, I, ultimately the reason why that show did not last more than two seasons is because only the, only the comedy junkie could really follow what was going on. <laughs> you know, because we would, Colin Quinn was the host, and he has the attention span of a fruit fly, and so he would start off with one topic, and then immediately go into, well, what about police brutality? And what about the tsunami in Indonesia? And we would, what? I thought we were just talking about our mother. You know, it, would, it was just all over the place. And it was also a competition to see who could, who could get in the biggest dig at each other. So it was hard work. You had to go prepared with all these lines that you could, you know, you couldn't go on that show without doing your homework. Yeah. You had to go with prepared. Everybody thinks that, you know, some comedians make all these brilliant observations off the top of their head. No, we would go in there with prepared lines. And then one time, Dennis Leary was on the show with Greg Giraldo. Oh, yeah. And Leary said, Leary, Greg Giraldo made a funny remark, and it was clear that he'd written it, but it was funny. And then Dennis said, oh, so is that one of your prepared jokes that you brought on stage, on, the, on camera? And then Greg right away said, well, Dennis, that's sort of the way we do it here. We, we sort of prepare and we sort of write comedy. Maybe if you'd written another little more comedy, your show would still be on. And Dennis, you could see the look on his face like, you know, like, oh, my God, he got me. Because yeah. Dennis, Dennis came into that show thinking he was kind of above it all. You know what I mean? He, he thought, he thought I'm, I'm too good for this. I'm on Rescue Me. I don't need to be on, you know, this show with these comedians. Who, and so and he came on and he, he, got, he, got, his, he got his ass kicked. And, and that, that happened to more than one one comic on that show. So a whole lot of comics that left that show with feelings hurt. You know, a whole lot of one and gone. A lot of comics couldn't deal with it. But I didn't take it seriously. I did not let it get to me personally. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I, w I did the best I could yeah. on that show. And yeah. Colin liked it because, because they would come at me. Because at the time, 
I mean, this was only this was only 2002 to 2004. At the time, believe it or not, some be, a comedian being openly gay on television was yeah. still a novelty. There was there was just me and um, uh, I, I think Mario Cantone and Judy Gold, and there weren't that many of us. No, you know, there now weren't. there's, I mean, the 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 next generation of comics. It's like, I mean, there are so many of them that they just had a diversity showcase in in L.A. where they showed all of these you know, lesbian and gay and comics of color. And, you know, and it's like, if you were a white guy, you didn't get on that show. <laughs> you know, the Not times have changed. It's all about diversity now. But back then it was kind of me. And, and you know what I mean? And so yeah. I was sort of the token gay guy on that show. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people saw me. And there was nothing I could do about it. I want to talk a little bit about being out because... You know, I did start with Marion. I did start with Judy. And while they while they never addressed their sexuality, they, they never came out either. It was just a non-issue. They were going to talk about the things they were going to talk about. You were open from the first time I saw you. you know, no, not really. Um, not really. I mean, I was. it took me about 13 years really? to actually address it on stage and talk about my partner, who's now my husband, Right. But I, I did it. I was afraid to do it because I thought that somebody would throw stuff at me, which they did at, at some times. I got a shot glass thrown at me at a bar and it broke on the brick wall behind me. I got, I was in, I was at helium in pencil in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I just started talking about my partner on stage. And this guy in the audience yelled out, Hey, is this a gay bar? And I said, uh, no, if you want a gay bar, you go outside and there's um, there's a, a, a bar over there called a mansion. You turn left and go down the street. And then the guy said, well, yeah, well, if this isn't a gay bar, would you stop, you know, forcing your gayness all over me? And then I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ram it down your throat. And the whole audience lost it and yeah. they threw that guy out. But I would I would encounter. A, I mean, after I came out and I was the first guy on. I was the first um, openly gay man to have a Comedy Central special. That had never been done. That was in 2001. Right. And it was still a novelty. And so people, some people reacted very negatively to it. Like the worst was morning zoos around the country on the radio. Yeah. That was the worst. Because I would go in to, to plug the show wherever I was and, you know, comedy, you know, at the, uh, you know, uh, Funny Bone in Columbus, Ohio. I'd go on the radio, and or I'd go on the radio in Detroit with the number one Michigan talk radio in the morning, and they were not prepared for me. And so when they said, "Are you married?" I said, "No, they have that kind of marriage isn't legal yet." They would be like, "What? What? It didn't say it didn't say you were a homosexual in your bio, you know?" And no, it didn't. But <laughs> some, I, I got a lot of pushback. But I do remember. Um we did a show, and I, I may be misremembering, but I believe we did a show at the bitter end, and somebody yelled out something tremendously homophobic, and I just remember you going off on them in a, in a way that made it clear that you were not going to stand on stage and allow that. No, you know? I didn't. You know, and, I, and Listen, I don't know where that came from, Jim. I don't yeah. know. I think it was years of pent-up rage. <laughs> You know, that I was just, I was like, no, uh, this is, this is, you know, this is the 1990s and no, you're not going to do this to me. 
Yeah. You know. And I just loved watching you do that because I loved watching that audience member get progressively smaller, just shrink down in size when he realized the entire room was on your side and not his. Well, that was, that was what was the hardest, that was the, what, what was the biggest surprise is that when somebody yelled out something insulting at me, um, the audience would immediately side with me because it's like, leave him alone. You know, let him do, let him do what he's doing. Yeah. You know, that was, that was very interesting how that developed. And one of the most fun things for me, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is everyone always says to me, how do you handle Hecker? You know, if somebody heckles you, what do you do? And I tell everyone, just watch Jim David. Just go watch Jim David. Because somebody is going to yell something out and he's going to have nine new minutes immediately. Um, One of the greatest develop? things that ever happened. I was on a, I was performing in a comedy club um, on a cruise ship. And it was a club on the ship. You know what I mean? Yeah. With like 125 seats. So it was a nice little space. Oh, the old carnival ones, yeah. I mean, it wasn't carnival. It was, I think it was that style. Yeah. But, but I was, uh, it was a perfectly good show, but there was this woman in the audience who was given the first comedian, a lot of trouble. She was a, like a middle-aged housewife kind of lady. And she was just drunk and she was yelling stuff out. And then the minute I went on stage, she started yelling stuff at me. And I said, is this the way it's going to be? Are there, are we going to just listen to your shit for the next 20 minutes? Or are you going to allow me to do a show? You know, and she said, well, I came here to see comedy. And I said, well, if you'd let me get out of fucking line, then, you know, we could have some comedy. And somehow it was, it was, I remember what it was. Remember before they legalized marriage equality in 2015, they, they, they had all these court decisions that gradually legalized it in state after state after state. And that day they had legalized it in like 13 states. And one of them was North Carolina. And I said, I'm from North Carolina. The whole front row goes, yay. And I said, oh, you're from North Carolina? They said, yeah. And I said, hey, they legalized marriage equality there today. It just became legal. And they applauded. And then this woman who'd been given trouble said, two big thumbs down for that. And I said, what? And she said, marriage is a sacred covenant only between a man and a woman. And I said, not anymore, bitch. You know, <laughs> and it proceeded from there. And she wouldn't shut up. And I finally had to threaten to call security on her. And then I said, you know what? This is clearly not the show for you. And I wasn't going to do this, but I'm just going to do 20 minutes of gay material just to piss you off. And there was, there was a, a black waiter right in the front row serving, a, a, you know, serving an audience member. And I said, this is my lover, Mobeni Ungemoff from Uganda. I was just sitting on his big black cock this morning. And the whole crowd was hysterical. They were hysterical. And she was just sitting there like, like that. And then after the show, like half of the audience went up to the guest relations desk to complain about her, not me. That's awesome. That was a moment of triumph. Because, you know, you have to turn it around and throw it right back in their face. Because yeah. remember, remember, you're, you've got the mic. You yeah. have the microphone. I mean, this is what sometimes comedians tend to forget that. We have the mic and we are everybody's looking at us. They're not looking at them. Yeah. So <clears throat> the only, the only um, danger is when you make it too much about that. You know, I remember yeah. I was at Skyline comedy club <clears throat> in 
in Wisconsin. Did you ever go there? Oh yeah, beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful club. Yeah. It's a first rate club in a fourth rate town. <laughs> and <laughs> I was on the radio. I was on the radio and it was they were playing the most racist comedy tapes. It mm. was like a a routine about some woman with 25 chillings and, you know, having another baby. I mean, it was just awful. And w while I was on the radio, I said, well, it's nice to be here on WKKK. <laughs> wow. You have to, you have to just give it back to them, you know? Yeah. It, you know, but one of the magic with watching you deal with hecklers is that more than so many comics, you have a, a, a dialogue with the audience when you perform. You make us feel like we're having a conversation with you, which is a style of comedy that I adore. That to me, you know, that draws me in more than the presentational type of comics. And when you start with a heckler, you bring in other audience members to your side. You get people to agree with you. You start uniting the rest of the room. Is that something that you do instinctually or is that something that you learned how to do over time? I'm sure it's a little both. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's, a, I, think that, I think that most of what we do on stage, we've learned over time. You know, we've, yeah. learned, we, we've learned how to do that. And uh, you know, it's, uh, I remember I was just at the comic strip before, before quarantine and I was doing that. There were only like 35 people in the audience. And I was just sort of doing that and bouncing stuff off everybody. And then this one guy almost started taking over in the, in the uh, audience. And I finally said, okay, back to me. Okay. <laughs> now back to me shows up here. Okay. I remember that. And that was, that was funny. Cause that got a laugh, you know, like, yeah. okay, we're done now. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime you feel like yelling out some stupid shit, feel free. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't have an act. I said, I don't have an act or a career. <laughs> so <laughs> go ahead, say whatever you want. Oh, but but I mean, I think you learn, you learn these things because you know how, like, you know how a comedian, it's like if a joke bombs and you don't acknowledge it and you just move on, it's much more awkward. Oh yeah. Like if, if a joke bombs and I'll say, man, that bomb was louder than Hiroshima. You know, it, it's, and th then they laugh at it because you're acknowledging what you do or what'll happen is like, I'll be in the middle of a riff talking about something. And then all of a sudden I get tongue tied and I'll go and then, and then I just, Hey, you know, and I just keep going at it. You know what I mean? So yeah. if these are all, this is all learned over time. Well, you know, you know, what's going to work and you yeah. know, if you, if you screw up in the middle of a sentence or whatever, just have fun with it and acknowledge it and move on. And the audience is fine. You know, it also helps. It also helps if they like you. Yeah. You know, if they've decided that they like you within the first five minutes. Yeah. Sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes people just don't. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that's the hardest thing about comedy, I think, is looking at that one face in the audience. That's, you know what I mean? Everybody around them is laughing, but they're like. Yeah. I don't, I'm not getting this. I've had this conversation with comics all the time. We we can get a standing ovation and our eyes will draw to the one person that isn't clapping. It, it is consistent with us. Listen, when I did my Comedy Central special, it was in a theater with 500 people and so many people came that they had to open up the second balcony. 
there were hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment aimed at me. They built me a set to my specifications, which was because I live in New York City and I'm originally from the South. It was a mobile home underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. Kind of brilliant. I had, I, I got so many applause breaks that I had to tell the audience, okay, stop applauding after every joke because we, I want to end this thing. I, it was the greatest night of my life. And I walked off stage and I said to the sound guy, so was that funny? Yeah. That's what I had we do. A, I'd gotten a standing ovation at the end yeah. of the set. Standing up. And, and the, I walked, was that funny? Was that okay? Why do you think that is what we do? Why? Because it's not just you and me that do it. It's consistently stand-ups that do it. You know, they're, they're either raging unless, egotists. Unless the, audience, unless the audience is crawling over broken glass to lick the hem of our garment, <laughs> we don't think we've done our job. Yeah. We're pathetic. You know, we are, most comedians are incredibly insecure to a degree. Um, we, we, uh, you know, it's like we, we think I'm the funniest person on the show tonight, but I'm also a dick. I don't know how, I don't know what that's about, Yeah, but, but it's true. I think it's true of every comedian to a degree because we, 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 the only way that we can get fulfilled is to go out on stage and have a bunch of strangers laugh at us, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very psychotic thing. It's, it's interesting that since I haven't performed since March the um, 12th, that was mm -hmm. our, my last gig, I have not, I've been okay with taking this break. It, it's, really? it's interesting. Yeah, I've been okay with it because I've, you know, I've been taking care of, taking care of my husband and cooking a ton and, you know, I'll come out here to the, to my second home and, Life is good. And I'll go back to performing one of these days. I'll go back, but I have not missed it. Like, I don't need, I've enjoyed having the time. Hmm. Because comedians work very hard. And I'm on the road 25 weeks out of the year. 25 to 30 weeks out of the year. Yeah. And I don't have to, I haven't had to go on an airplane since the middle of March. And right, That's a bonus, yeah. I haven't had to go to an airport. And so I've been okay. I've been writing a lot. I mean, I, I haven't been sitting around. You know, I've been, I'm trying to finish a script and I've got a bunch of other things I'm working on and I've been doing stuff like this, you know, mm -hmm. but um, still, you know, it's been okay. It's, it's been okay. And I'll go back to, I'll go back to work, but I don't need it. I've, I've learned that I've done it long enough that, okay, I can take a break now. Because, and look, you have to accept it. The one a, a comedian, Vanessa Hollingshead, asked me if there's anything that I've learned from this time. And I said, at first I said, no. Um, but then the second, second thing I said was, well, I've learned that acceptance is my friend because I have to accept what is happening in, in the world right now. There's nothing I can do about it. And, you know, certain, certain political leaders are not going to die just because I want them to. <laughs> oh, if no. only wishes could come true. I'm with you on that one. But you know, I just we have to accept what I've accepted it, and also I'm doing my best with the time. You know. Now, I I also want to talk about this, and it, it's a bit of a serious topic. So, you know, I hope you'll indulge me for a couple of seconds. When 
we first started, I saw some veteran comics say some shit to you that I walked up to them afterwards going, you know, that's not cool, right? And I saw you have to deal with some shit from club owners on occasion. A couple of things that Lucian said to you on occasion where they're like, that's none of your business, you know? And, and it, you went through a lot of shit when you started and yet you've always been one of the kindest, most giving people in the industry. You don't view it as a competition. When new comics come up to talk to you, I've seen you talk to them. I've seen you give them advice. You know, I've worked with you and, and you know, when we've worked together, you've come uh, getting off stage going, hey, I got a line for you or I got an idea for you. How do you maintain that level? How did you not become a complete douchebag, given all the shit you went through to start with and maintain that amount of humanity? Um, I, wow. Um, I've never been asked that. I've never even thought about that. Thank you for saying that. Um, I think I cared what people thought of me and I didn't want to come off as a dick. Um, I could have given the, some of the things that some people said to me. Well, like I remember when I first worked at the comic strip, Lucian, may he rest in peace. He was the owner. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, he wasn't the owner. He was the, the manager and the booker yeah. and everything. And I was noticing that I was getting not good spots. Like I was getting the opening spot or the closing spot on the show, which was from nine to one at the time. Yeah. And I I went up to him and I said, is there any way I can get spots closer to the middle of the show? And he said, well, the prime spots are for the people who are going to be stars. You know, the Chris rocks, the Adam Sandlers, the rest of you have to find it out amongst yourselves. And I just, I just looked at him and I said, okay. And I did not go back into that club until he was gone. So that's how I, that's how I just didn't go back. I didn't call him in. I didn't give my availability. I just said, if he thinks that, then I'll go work somewhere else, which is what I did for the remainder of his time there. And then when JR took it over, I went back, you know, but, uh, but I would, I remember I, I didn't, I tried not to take all that stuff seriously. And I saw what I saw what other comedians were doing and I didn't want to be like that. Um, I saw other comedians were very territorial and competitive and they were very quick to say that guy's a hack. That guy's a hack. He stinks, you know? And I was like, well, that guy may have a sitcom. I mean, that's what, and that's in fact what happened. I mean, if you had told me, back when we were first starting out and working with Adam Sandler, if you had told me that that guy was going to be one of the biggest movie stars in the world, I would have said, you're out of your mind. And that's what happened. And so you never know who's going to do what. You never know. And, and also, it's, I realized that it's, it's really not a competition. I mean, I used to get upset that I wasn't considered for stuff and other people were. Sure, we all do, you yeah. know. But then eventually... It came around to, to my ter- to be me to my turn, and like mm-hmm. eventually I did get to go to Montreal for four times, and eventually I did get picked for this, and I did do the late night shows, and I you know what I mean. But we all have our own time, and it also also comedy is very subjective, but you know what I mean. It's like we either think somebody is funny or we don't. Yeah. And and look, there are certain famous comedians I just don't think are funny. They don't make me laugh. But then somebody like our dearly departed friend Vic Henley, yeah. was had me on the floor all the time, you know. And uh, George Wallace, 
you know who George Wallace, Jerry Seinfeld's best friend. Yeah. George has been an idol of mine ever since I saw him at Catch a Rising Star talking about the lady on the plane with the big titties and the melon-headed little baby. She was she had the biggest titties. She was in coach and the baby was in first class. <laughs> you know, she, but I met George in Vegas through a mutual friend and he came and saw my show and now we're in contact all the time. You know, but who knows how that's going to happen. So you just have to accept what happened. And so I think that in the times when people would disrespect me, I just, I came home and, you know, shed a few tears and then let it go because that's the, that's, it's a tough, cold business. And if you let it get to you, it will, you yeah. know, and it, it also, it does. See, I have a, I have a, I have a gag about it. It's like, you know how you'd be on the road, on the road, there's an opener, a feature and a headliner. And the opener would always go, well, I usually feature. And the feature would go, well, usually I headline. I usually headline. And then the headliner would go, well, I usually am on a sitcom. You know, I'm usually I'm usually doing theaters or on a sitcom. And then the guy on the sitcom goes, well, I usually am nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't stop. Yeah. So I would always try not to be one of those guys. I, I looked at other people and I'd say, I don't want to do that. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's just, I, I'm always amazed when I see people because, you know, I didn't get the kind of shit that somebody like you did when they started out. You know, maybe it was... Well, I, the, I was out of, I was not one of the guys. Yeah. I was an off-the-charts different person. Than, yeah. Not, I was, I was, first of all, I was gay. And secondly, I was not like a... a I was not a comic who talked about, you know, how he just broke up with his girlfriend. Yeah. You know, I was, and that's why, that's why it's, it's really good what's happening in comedy now is that diversity is king because you see all these different types of comics that when we first started out, it was a white guy's game. Yeah, it was. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then you'd have some, then you'd have somebody like Chris Rock who would come along and be so good that he, you couldn't deny him. You know what I mean? But I was there. They did for his first three years. His first they three did? years in the business. Oh, Lucian, you think Lucian gave, you know, you shit. Man, some of the stuff he put that kid through was amazing. Yeah. 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 It, it's uh, it's funny how talent finds a way to, you know, find a watermark. Um, yeah. So I also want to talk about you are so entrenched in theater and you bring your theater influences into the stand-up stage. Sometimes subtly, sometimes it's just a reference. Um, you know, it, I kind of count the musical references when I watch you, because you, you slip a bit there, and you don't you don't announce them. They're just part of a setup somewhere, randomly, and it's beautiful to watch. Um, how, much, how much of the theater did you take with you, and how much has stayed with you? Because now, you know, as you said when we started the interview, you started in the theater, but now you've been doing stand-up much more and much longer than you were ever in the theater. How much of it still stays with you? All of it. <laughs> All of it. Uh, if I could, if I could stop doing comedy right now and go do a show on Broadway, I would be the happiest. I, and just in a small part, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I mean, I'd walk on stage and go, "Hey, everybody, here comes the punk wagon," and then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be it. That would be fine because the theater is so much fun. I love being in the building. 
I like sitting in the tech rehearsals and watching them hang the lights. You know, yeah. it's so much fun. And I did make it to Broadway one time. I did. And so it wasn't, the show was not a hit, but I was still on, it was a nine month period of my life where I would go to the Lunt Fontan Theater every afternoon and rehearse. And then we would perform at night. And it was the greatest experience of my life. And uh, I was wearing a turquoise bugle beaded tuxedo designed by Bob Mackey. <laughs> so, I mean, it was heaven. Let, it was heaven. Let's but talk about that. Also, that, was, that was, you know. I used to, before, before I was a comedian, I used to direct high school plays in, in, in high school theater. <laughs> so but, it's, all, it's all a part of it. I mean, I'm a creature of it, you know. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, you've been on TV. You've had your own Comedy Central special. You've done the late night shows all the things that comics want to, to do. And yet I just saw your face light up talking about a small role for nine months in a show that wasn't even, you know, in your words, a major hit. What is it about, you know, that experience that trumps the stand-up experience? Did I lose you? Uh, you're a little frozen, but you'll come back in a second. Are you there, Jim? Are you there? There you are. Yes. Okay. You are back. You're frozen. Oh, well, it yeah. Welcome to welcome to the world of Zoom technology. Yeah, right. Let's. Um, what was it about the theater and, and about that experience on Broadway in particular that just was so satisfying for you? It's the camaraderie of working with the other actors and the directors and the stage managers. It's it's an ensemble, and that's what I miss most about it. While I'm doing comedy with comedy, you're all alone. You're all alone, and sometimes you're really alone. Meaning. The other comics don't even want to watch you. They don't want to see you. Mm. you. It's you and the audience, and that's it. When you're in a show, you you go to the theater. You hang out in the dressing room with everybody. You know, it's it's yeah. a it, it's a it's a group effort. It's like being on a television show. It's the same. It's kind of the same experience. Like if you're on a soap opera or a situation comedy or even even a even a drama or a movie. That's working with people, and that's the best part of it. That's that's why you look forward to going to work every day. Yeah. And then and then there's also the the interesting thing of you're doing the same show over and over again. Like when you're on Broadway, it's eight times a week, and you have to somehow make that performance fresh, and you have to figure out a way to just put a little gesture in or just a little way that you or like you really have to listen to the other performers and be in the moment, you know? Yeah. And then, and then if you're doing something like Shakespeare or a period drama in verse, you have the added skill of having to learn how to do that. So you have to, you know, you have to, you have to know what you're saying when you, when you're doing Richard the second and you say of comfort, no man speak, let's talk of graves of worms and epitaphs, make dust our paper and with rainy eyes, write Sorrow on the bosom of the earth. You have to know what the hell that means. <laughs> let's, uh, you don't. That's, that's all precision work. That's all. When we talk about theater, we're talking about, you know, Bill Hickey was the person, my theater teacher growing up in New York city. And yeah. Was, we, and he used to talk about the precision of theater and, and and the landing everything in its own isolated, perfect spot. Um, and yet I see you doing that with your stand-up. I see you doing that, holding a pause for that exact perfect amount of time, embracing the silence from the audience, you know, and not rushing to a punchline because you need to hear the laugh. Yeah, 
how much George of, Carlin. Yeah. George Carlin always said, don't be afraid of the silence. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Just let they're still listening to you. Yeah. Not every moment has to be boom, boom, boom. That was one of the hardest lessons to learn. Is it, that took years because I had I grew up watching Rodney Dangerfield and Phyllis Diller. Yeah. And the, every line was, if you want to laugh, go to YouTube and search Phyllis Diller fat jokes on YouTube. And it's a, it's a six-minute clip from her HBO special back in the 80s or 70s, late 70s. I don't know. Whenever. She was one of the first HBO specials. Mm -hmm. And she, the whole setup is, she says, my mother-in-law is coming over this weekend. King Kong with an overnight bag. Jello with a belt. And then, it, then she proceeds to do six minutes of fat jokes. Just one after the other. You get in an elevator with her, you better be going down. No, we didn't have a sunken living room until she came over. We now have a Persian rug. She sat on the cat. She likes to go down. She likes to go downtown and, and watch it and burn out all the escalators. Just one after the other. It's really great. Oh, yeah. When I was, That's also I was teaching, yeah. teaching comedy, you know, with Andy Engel's outfit, you know, I would always make my students watch Phyllis Diller. They'd never heard of Phyllis Diller. And I would always make them watch those clips and Rodney Dangerfield and Woody Allen. Yeah. And I would say, the, because just to teach them that the first thing you have to have is material, you know, yeah. and then you can, you know, work on the delivery. But the first thing you have to have is, 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 you know, a good stand up act is good material presented with confidence. And same thing that an actor does, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but Except we also actors, the lines are there. The lines are somebody else's. Yeah, and we have to create those for ourselves. Uh, I want to talk a yeah. little bit about the that energy that you bring to the stage, because you're not a typical high energy act. You're not bouncing off a, a, of the the sides of the stage, but you bring energy and enthusiasm every time you perform. Every show, you know, I, I I've done you know two show nights with you or bounced it in clubs where I've seen you do three or four sets in a night and you have just as much energy on the last one as you did on the first one. You know, let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, do you maintain that energy? Do you perform to it? Or is it something that happens with the adrenaline of the moment? Um, it's usually what, usually it's like, okay, let's go. Okay. Let's go do this. Um, yeah, I guess it's just natural. I don't know. I have a naturally loud voice. I have a naturally loud, loud stage voice. Mm -hmm. So my presence is strong to begin with because I'm loud, you know. Yeah. And so I guess that, that I guess I've fooled you into thinking that I'm energetic. But it's it's uh, I'm I usually want to. I don't do a show not to have a good time. I mean, mm. because remember, the reason we're doing this is because this is all supposed to be fun. Yeah. And then something I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. You know, I'm excited because it's going to new to me, too. I mean, even though I'm doing the same jokes, there's always a slightly different reaction. And then you'll have somebody in the audience that all of a sudden is screaming and cackling with laughter and they can't stop. And there's that. That is fun to happen. And then I just I don't like, you know, we talked about being heckled before and I and I, I don't like being heckled, you know. So yeah. I, I'm not looking forward to that. 
No. But. Yeah, let's let's hope when they come back to have a little more class when they come back. We can <laughs> for them. Uh, I want to talk about your writing process because you always have new material. You're always working on something new every time I see you. How often do you write? What is your process to getting something ready for the stage? I write every day. Um, I go through the news and get ideas. I try not to write too much topical material because the late night guys are going to get to the same stuff before I do. And they've got a team of 12 writers. Mm -hmm. So I, one time I, I, when I did a podcast, I interviewed this playwright called Charles Bush. Have you ever heard of him? Mm -hmm. He did, you know, he did, he did vampire lesbians of Sodom and, uh, you know, the lady, he's done a bunch of brilliant stuff. And he, he wrote the tale of the allergist wife that was on Broadway. And he said he writes down every single idea that he ever gets. He always has a, a, a pad with him. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love the, the smartphone, because it has a note thing. And yeah. so I'll, I'll write down every, I, I took that from Charles. But I also have, I also used to do it all the time. You just write down every idea that you get. You don't have to write a joke. But the, and then once you look at the material, like say, I like I haven't written much material about the pandemic because there everybody else is talking about it all the time. And when this is all over and I go back on stage, I'm not going to really want to talk about it. Maybe a few or th three or four lines about it. But then let's move on, you know. And but I did. I, I was looking at the protests and I went, how could I make this funny? Because this is horrible all this violence and everything, it's not funny. But then I w went, oh, I get it. And, and I just came up with a line, black people protest when they're being murdered, white people protest when they can't get a haircut. You know, so you yeah. just try to find a funny take on it. And sometimes this takes hours. Some, you know this, I mean, sometimes yeah. it'll take a long time to come up with, I mean, people think that we sit down and, you know, pearls of wisdom come out. No, it's hard work. It is, it's work where you have to, and then you have to go back to the basic construction of a joke. You know what I mean? It's like, this is the way you write a joke. It goes over here and then it comes back that way. So in other words, my wife, what a cook. I didn't know toast had bones or the old Henny Youngman line where he says, my wife said she wanted to go somewhere she'd never been. I said, try the kitchen. <laughs> so it's it, at, on the, the most basic level of that. You have to, you have to take it one way and then it comes back the other way. Because that's the yeah. surprise. So you just have to know that what you're doing is that. So there's a difference between a joke and a statement. You know, mm -hmm. a statement is, is uh, you know, these people are the stupidest motherfucker. You know what I mean? But no, you know, you have to you have to come around and say these people are like half of the country thinks that Yves Saint Laurent is the night before Saint Laurent. You have to somehow come and make make that up to it. Yeah, I'm not making these. You know what I'm talking about. Oh it, yeah, it's it's you 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 have to you have to you have to write it and a whole bunch of things, and uh, probably about half the stuff that you write at least is not going to work. Mm -hmm. You know, it it may you may think on the page that it's interesting, but then when you get up and do it, if the audience doesn't laugh at it, it doesn't work. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. there's there's no. There's nothing you can do about it. So it's like, damn it, I had, I had, and I will even say, if I do it, if I do a new joke on stage that doesn't work, my, my, uh, my, uh, my takeaway, my save line is, I had the highest hopes for that joke, <laughs> you know, and then they always laugh at that. Yeah. Right. 
So I, I try to write every single day for at least at least 30 minutes to an hour, at least. And um, right now I'm trying to finish the script and that's horrible. That's killing yeah. me because well, I don't know what happens. <laughs> yeah, when you're writing it, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, but, ideally, I should know where I'm going with it, but don't. But now but I've got you, some really good scenes. You've written, you know, you've written a one-person show. You've written a novel. You, you've, you've written longer form stuff before, you know. So how is the process for that different for you than your stand-up writing? When I... <clears throat> When I wrote my novel, I was writing it on the road out of boredom. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going. The way it started was I was in a restaurant in a hotel. And I saw this woman sitting by herself eating. And she did not look happy. And so I started writing about her. And just making up a whole life for her. Then she got up. And then she got up and went away. And I kept writing and that was my novel, you okay. know, but it was, you just, you just write about it and, and write about the situation and you just write it and then you go back and edit it and then you go back and do it again. Writing the one person show was a whole different thing because that was pretty much written on stage in a way. I mean, it was, it was, you know, I had to, I, I would write the, I, the play, I, the play I did, the one man show was called South Pathetic. And it was, I mean, I toured it around the country for like 15 years. And, you know, the first few performances of it, it was about half of what it eventually ended up becoming. Because I didn't know how to, to get here and to go there. And so you, I mean, I modeled it on Lily Tomlin. I modeled it on what she did. You know, mm -hmm. where she was not afraid. She was not afraid to have a conversation between two characters by just going, what do you think? Well, I don't know. You know what I mean? So you you, you get to have the two characters talk to each other. Right. So that was an interesting, that took a lot of a workshop, a lot of performing. And then I would, I would tape every performance and go back and look at it and go, hmm, let me change it to this. And how do I get to there? And I worked with a really good director who you know, would say, maybe go over here, the guy that the guy that helped me create it. So that was a real collaborative effort. So that was, it's, it's a real different process. But writing the novel and writing, that was completely in my head and the computer. You know, right. I didn't have to. And then eventually, once I had like 400 pages written, I sent it to some literary agents and they recommend, one of them recommended an editor that I should work with. So I, I wrote, I sent it to this editor and she agreed to take it on. And then she would, go through the book and say, take this from chapter 12 and put it in chapter one and then move this over here and then move this there. And at first I was like, when I got her 35 page analysis of what I'd written back at first, I was like, what do you mean? This isn't ready for the Pulitzer prize. What are you talking about? You mean? And then I, then I went, you know what? Just, just do the fucking work and, and do what she says and see how it turns out. And so I did. And I took, I followed all of her directions and rewrote it and had this over here and this over here. And she said, okay, cut this out because you're not going to, you never come back to this character. You don't need it there, you know, stuff like that. And so that was really how it, that was an interesting process. Really, really interesting and hard. And it took a long time because I mean, the book exists, it's out there. You can order it on Amazon. It's called You'll Be Swell. And it's a lot of fun. And it's about a struggling actress who falls off of a cruise ship by mistake. And that starts a chain reaction that makes her famous. 
and it's really fun, and I'm real proud of it. Well, you but, should uh, be. I had some interest. I had a, I had a, this guy who produced this movie. What's love got to do with it? About Tina Turner mm-hmm. was cl- this close to optioning it for a, a movie, and then ended up not doing it. Ah. But uh, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't that have been something? That would have been something. Let's. Yeah. Uh, we've been. Um, I mentioned a whole lot of people that you know were shitty when you started, but um, who are some of the people that helped you? Who are some of the artists that were kind to you and and made the beginning journey nicer for you? From the be- in the beginning, yeah, or throughout your career, Lewis Black. Lewis Lewis Black was always very supportive of me. Eddie Brill was great to me. Um, Daryl Hammond was a big supporter. Um, Greg Regal, yeah. Um, um, Colin Quinn was a big supporter of mine. Um, surprisingly, because I didn't think Colin would like my work at all, but he did. Um, a bunch of them, a bunch of guys, you, you were really good to me. You always have been. And your, your ex-wife was lovely to me, Leanne. Yep. She was always very sweet to me. I mean, I, there were most of them. There were a few comedians that didn't really talk to me. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but they didn't talk to anybody else either. You know, it wasn't just me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Joy Behar. Joy Behar was really a big help to me. She yeah. was a big supporter. And um, I just think it's it's unbelievable. Joy is the luckiest comedian in the entire world because she said to me early on, she said, I'm interested in this city. I don't want to go on the road. I don't want to play the funny bone in, in you know, Norfolk, Virginia. I, I want to stay here. And she did. And yeah. now she, and for the last, for the last 20 years, she's been on television and she's worth about, you know, $80 million or something ridiculous like that. Wow. So, you know, she never left the city. And she does not have to. And that's that's the dream, isn't it? We all have that dream. Oh, my God. She's able to go on a television show and just talk about current events with famous people. Yeah. That's the greatest job. And have somebody. I'll take it. Yeah, I think we all take it. You've been yeah. incredibly kind, and we've just spent an hour about talking. Um, what's next? What are you still looking forward to do that you haven't done yet? What's your bucket list for showbiz? My bucket list is to uh, do something. Well, it's it's hard to see right now. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's hard to see what hell. I mean, because we're going to be the last people to go back to work. Um, yeah. Because it's we can't go back to work until audiences can go to a club and i mean audiences can sit in a club not with the social distancing just back to normal so immediately i would like to go back to that yeah you know just to go back to just to go back to normal back to back to some clubs and some ships and um and but but for the for the third act of my life which i'm in you know yeah. i would i would like to I'm, I'm going to try to do something uh, in the theater when the theater comes back. I'm going to try to to do something that I've always wanted. I, I would like to try to do some stuff that I've always wanted to do and somehow never done. You know, yeah. we'll see. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens because I, I don't know how this is all going to play out. You know, none of us do. No. You know, I mean, no. until then, I'll just keep writing and I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And, and if I get this, if I get this script done that I'm working on, 
maybe it's a, it's a film. Maybe somebody will want to make it. That would be fun. That you know, be. because there, because there are, there are so many options for, I mean, like I've, I, I, like I, I pitched, I, I showed the first act of this screenplay to a television writer that I respect and he, he's a showrunner. Mm-hmm. And he said, "No, oh, this is great. I can't wait to see what happens." No, she, he was really encouraging. And I said, "Well, have I, I said, were you ever bored?" And he said, "No." And so that's good. So yeah. we'll see. You know, I would like to. That's that's my my dream is to finish that script because just to get it done, just to get it the thing done. You know, because so yeah. many people are like, "Well, I got an idea for this," and and also I don't know if it's a script or a miniseries. It could be. I don't know if it's a it's a two hour movie or a, or a miniseries. At this point, it's looking more like a miniseries because I just keep writing all these little stories in it. <laughs> or maybe it's just a bad miniseries. But there are so many venues. I mean, I mean, my God, there's Amazon, there's Netflix, there's Hulu. There's so, Getting a show on network television is really the last thing that anybody's thinking about right now. How, how about that? Yeah. Remember how, we all, remember how we, all, we all wanted the development deal so we could have a sitcom? Yeah. You know, now people are do, doing their own. People are shooting it themselves on YouTube and they're all doing it. Yeah. And it's you know, web series too. that's look at Billy Eichner. I mean, Billy Eichner started following people on the street screaming. Oh, excuse me. No decline. No. I just got yeah. a. Are you You're still back. there? Yep. I just got a, I just got a call. I just had to decline. It. <laughs> yeah. Billy, Billy Eichner did it himself. He started, he, he started running along the street, just, you know, Meryl Streep, you know, or, or Lena Horne, anything, you know, just screaming at people. And now he's got that on, that got picked up for Fuse TV or something. And then he has his own show on Hulu and he's in The Lion King. And so all of that happened because he picked up the phone or got a camera and did it. Yeah. So maybe I can come up with something like that to do. That'd be fun. Yeah, it absolutely We'll see. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you again in clubs as soon as they reopen. You know, and, and too, Jim. continuing this conversation. Thank you for thinking of me. It's a, it, it's, a fun conversation. Comics need to learn from the good people. That's that's the whole philosophy behind the show. You know, because you don't have to be a dick, you know, to do this. No, you don't. Despite popular that will, listen, that, no, but I think that's, that's, that, if you're a dick, that will follow you. Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely you know what I mean? Will. I mean, there are some people in our business that have a reputation for being a dick. And there's only one reason they have that reputation is because they're a dick. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to wrap so up. Here. I'm going to wrap up here with Jim and I'll be uh, back to end this in just a second. Thank you so much, Jim. I think what I most admire from Jim is the amount of grace that he has shown over the years and the ability to really stay human, to really stay focused on this is an entertainment where we deal one-on-one with the audience and to stay open and not let the industry or the jackasses bring them down to their level. Uh, It's a level of grace and dignity you don't usually get to see. And it's, it's fun that he's also such an accomplished artist as well. We have got a lot of great guests coming up in the next few weeks. You're going to be excited. Keep tuning in. Uh, keep watching. Let us know uh, who your favorites are. Comedy Legacy 
at nmcworldwide.com if you want to drop us a line. Um, you can go back and watch previous episodes on the YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash TV. There's a lovely playlist. All the videos are on that. Uh, or you could even uh, catch us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Apple, Spotify, iTunes. Go there. Let us know. Subscribe. Comment. Drop us a line. Let us know. Um, but on behalf of everybody involved in the Comedy Legacy Series, uh, we thank you for tuning in. We will see you again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.